morning, everyone. Well, in 2012, when I first uh, began speaking regularly on Sunday mornings, uh, there was a woman who hasn't attended here in many years who I thought maybe didn't like me very much. Uh, But she came up to me after a service and she said, I really enjoyed your sermon today. And I said, thanks. And and then she paused and, and she said, you know, Usually, I really don't like your preaching at all, but today's sermon was really good, and that was a little awkward, but she kept going. She said, in fact, every time that you step up there to speak, I am always so disappointed, but you did a great job today. You really did. I think she may not have liked me. Anyway, I didn't totally take it to heart. I I knew that this woman had certain issues in her life, and I agreed with her that I still had a lot to learn about preaching, and I was grateful that people in the church were gracious with me to give me time to grow. However, in spite of all of that, it was still discouraging, and I wasn't really sure what to do with it. Well, this morning, I want to think about discouragement and what to do with it. Uh, We've been looking at the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, as Jody said, for uh, the last few weeks. And today, what I want to do is I want to shift our focus away from the action of the story, and in fact, away from its main character, Joseph, and towards another central figure in the story whose name was Jacob. Uh, Jacob is Joseph's father. And the book of Genesis gives us a tremendous amount of information about Jacob, and uh, much of it is not pretty at all. In fact, it it pictures and paints, it paints a picture of a, a man who lives a very disappointing life and becomes very discouraged by the life that he's lived. But by God's grace, in the end, he figures out what to do with his discouragement. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at his story, and I want to think about what it teaches us about our own. Uh, Jacob grew up in a very dysfunctional home. His father's name was Isaac, his mom was Rebecca, and they had only two children, twin boys. And while it was certainly the hope of them as parents that these boys would grow up to be close friends, they became bitter rivals instead. Uh, In fact, these two boys didn't even wait until they were born to start duking it out. They began fighting while they were still in the womb. Uh, During her pregnancy, Rebecca described the twins as wrestling inside of her. And when it finally came time to give birth to the two little rascals, the one who was born first, the Bible says, was a hairy little baby named Esau who grew up to be a grizzly bear of a man. He loved the outdoors, he was an exceptional hunter, and he was chosen by his father as his favorite. Now, immediately after him came the second little boy. He would grow into a much quieter man, uh, more of a homebody, and he would be his mother's favorite. And what's interesting is that right when he was born, after his older brother Esau, Jacob came out grasping his brother's heel as if to say, no, 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 wait a minute, I want to be first. I want to be the firstborn. And so they gave him the name Jacob, which means he grasps the heel or he deceives. 
And Jacob would go on to live up to his name. To make a long story short, later in life, Jacob manipulated his older brother into trading away Esau's right to be the firstborn. And this was a really big deal because it gave him a double share of his father's inheritance. And not only that, but Jacob deceived his father Isaac unbelievably on his deathbed. And he stole a blessing that was meant for Esau. This was an egregious offense, and it ended up absolutely tearing the family apart. When it happened, Esau in particular was enraged, and he cried out with tears, Surely the name Jacob, deceiver, is perfect for you. And then this great, big, burly werewolf of a man swore that he would kill his younger brother. So Jacob did, of course, what all deceivers do when their schemes fall apart. He ran away. He just took off a few hundred miles to live with his uncle. Now, on the way to to his uncle's house, uh, something extraordinary happens. Jacob stops to spend the night in the open country, and he uses this stone as kind of a travel pillow, and, and God speaks to him that night through a dream. He dreams of this great, big, tall ladder or a step of stairs that reaches all the way up to heaven. And in the dream, there's angels that are moving up and and down from earth to heaven. And in the dream, God makes a promise to Jacob. He, He promises to bless him and to multiply his descendants and to give him all the land that he can see as he stands upon it. And not only that, God says, but I'm going to bless the entire earth through you. And this was very significant because God had promised these exact same things to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and then his father, Isaac. And now God was applying those same blessings to Jacob too. And I want you to look at Jacob's response to this. It's, it's very interesting. I'll put it behind me on the screen. I'm reading uh, Genesis chapter 28, verses 18 through 22. It says, So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Doesn't it? But there are two words that tell us that it really isn't. It's really quite shallow. And those words are if and then. Jacob says to God, if you will be with me, if you will keep me, if you will provide food and clothes and a peaceful life, then you'll be my God. And this stone shall be your house, and I will give you one-tenth of all I have. What Jacob is really saying here is, okay, God, I'm going to give you a shot and we'll see how it goes. If you come through for me and things work out smooth in my life, then I'll come come through for you too. You scratch my back, God, 
and I'll scratch yours. And what this really was is it revealed the sort of superficial faith that Jacob had that sounded spiritual and good, but but really wasn't faith at all. Jacob hadn't given his life to God. He just decided to rent himself out to him for a while to see how it goes. And he regarded God in terms of a purely transactional relationship. He, He tries to strike a bargain. But Jacob will later discover that God never agrees to his terms. Well, the next morning, Jacob leaves the promised land and goes to live with his uncle, a man whose name was Laban, for about 20 years, a long time. And during that time, he falls in love. One of Laban's daughters, a young woman named Rachel, wins his heart. But once again, to make a a long story short, the deceiver gets deceived. Laban actually tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. But, not to be deterred, Jacob marries Rachel too. And so, as you might expect, being married to two sisters brings about some problems in the dynamics of his family, to say the least. Well, Jacob, who has always been on top, who's always grasping at the heels of those who are above him, was not happy at all with being duped by his uncle. So he tricks his uncle in return and acquires a great deal of his uncle's wealth. In fact, so much so that our deceiver is forced to take off again. He runs for his life again, this time because he's afraid of his uncle, and he heads back towards his old home in the direction of this land that God has promised him, the promised land. And he, he almost gets there. In fact, he comes right up to the very border of the promised land to a little river called the Jabbok River. But before he's going to cross, there's some unfinished business that God has to deal with him on. Jacob hears news that Esau, his older brother, remember the werewolf? He's coming after him. He's marching, in fact, with 400 men towards Jacob and his new family. And and Jacob is terrified. His heart absolutely melts inside of him. And so what he does is he sends everyone, his family and his servants, across the river. And he himself spends the night alone on its banks. And then at nightfall, a man appears out of nowhere. And Jacob knows in his Bones that this man is none other than God himself in human form. And oddly enough, do you know what they do? They start wrestling. Really, that's what the text says. They just start to wrestle. I, I, I told this to my son this morning, and he just started laughing. It sounds really strange. Why would God do this? What's going on here? But what God is trying to do, we find out as we study the passages, he's trying to teach Jacob an object lesson. Wrestling is a physical representation of what Jacob has been doing all of his life. He wrestled with his brother, and he wrestled with his father, and he wrestled with his uncle. Since day one, Jacob has been scheming to try to get the upper hand to stay in control of his own destiny. And now what God is doing is he's stepping into Jacob's world to confront him. 
Well, Genesis uh, 32 tells us that these two fought strenuously all night. And we know that Jacob was a very, very strong man. But then, just as the sun began to rise with supernatural power, the man grabs the socket of, of Jacob's hip and he tears it right out of his joint. It's the strongest muscle in wrestling. The match was over. Jacob now had no chance of winning. But this is Jacob. Don't underestimate Jacob. Summoning all of the strength that he still had, every reserve of power that was within his body, Jacob manages to somehow lunge forward and he grabs a hold of the man and he will not let go. And the Bible says that through tears, he cried out, I will not let you free until you bless me. You've got to bless me, God. I need you to bless me. And you know what God does? He asked Jacob a question, very simple one. He says, what is your name? What's your name? And Jacob replies, in fact, you could say that he confesses to God at that moment, my name is Jacob. Now, Jacob, of course, was more than just the name that people called him. It was his identity. He had lived his whole life as the deceiver and now what God was doing is he was forcing him to face it what's so interesting is even the setting of this little object lesson approved the same point Jacob was standing between the boundary of the promised land and the rest of the world he's right in the middle the the time of day is is dawn right between light and darkness again he's right in the middle in the middle is where Jacob has lived He loved to ride the fence. He won't commit himself to God, but he still wants God's blessing. And he's used deception all of his life to try to live in two worlds. But God steps in to show him that relationship with God is not a transaction. Relationship with God always is based on grace. And so what God does as Jacob holds on to him through tears is exactly what Jacob asked God to do. God blesses him. Right there, it says he, he, he blesses him and, and he gives Jacob a new name to show that God wants Jacob's life to take a different direction that he might no longer be the deceiver. God has a a better plan and purpose for him. And his new name and his new identity, one in which Jacob would struggle with all of his life, would be Israel, which means strives with God. Now, there is so much that could be said about this short event in his life, but it seems to mark a kind of spiritual birth for Jacob. God is at work here in his heart, building him into a a new and different and better man. And then the, the sun is up, and with this, Jacob limps across the river, and he reconciles with his brother, and he makes his home in the promised land. And it will be many, many years until he leaves again. But he will leave. He'll be forced to. 
Now, there's a lot more to the story of Jacob than I just told you, and, and the story continues. In, in fact, that eventually brings us to the place where our 12-week series on the life of Joseph begins. Uh, Jacob, at the point where we are um, um, introduced to Joseph, is portrayed as a very ineffective parent who allows the same dysfunctional dynamics that existed in Jacob's home of origin to infect his own family now. And as a result of this toxic home, Jacob eventually loses his most precious possession of all, his dear son Joseph, believing that he's been killed by an animal attack. And what we see is that this absolutely shatters Jacob. He's never the same again after this happens. Now, Joseph, of course, was really alive. His 10 uh, older brothers had secretly sold him into slavery. And unbeknownst to everyone, God was at work in the background of Joseph's life. In fact, he led him to become the second most powerful figure in all of Egypt. But as far as Jacob knew, for 20 years, his son Joseph was dead. And all of the brothers figured that Joseph had died too. But then, as we saw last week, the truth is finally revealed. The brothers come to Egypt during a terrible famine in search of food. And after probing the brothers with a series of tests that are designed to find out whether or not these guys have really changed, Joseph finally is satisfied that they have. These are different men than the men that sold me into slavery. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and and forgives them in a very tearful reunion. But he also warns them that this famine is going to continue and that the entire family is going to have to relocate to Egypt where Joseph promises he will provide for all of them all the days of his life. And so Joseph sends the brothers back to their father Jacob with wagons that are loaded high with grain and food and clothes, all the good things of Egypt. And these same wagons bring back Jacob from his home across the the desert to Egypt to the presence of his long-lost son. He hasn't seen him in, in 20 years, and the reunion is a very powerful scene. Let me read for you chapter 46. Verses 29 and 30, excuse me. It says, Then Joseph prepared a chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. What What a moment this was. Can you you picture it? This son, Joseph, clinging to his father's neck and just holding on for a long while, weeping, while his father whispers in his ear, this is all I ever wanted. Just seeing your face is enough. I'd be okay if I died now. Well, you would think that that might be the end of the story. I mean, it's the perfect note to end on. The curtain would close and the story of Genesis can move on to some different people and and their stories as well. But the thing that I love about the book of Genesis and I love about what God does through his word here is he doesn't do that. 
He's going to stick with these people for a little while. And in fact, he's going to reveal to us something else about Jacob. And that is that there was a very dark secret that lived inside of him. Jacob had become a deeply discouraged man. And his soul was in a very, very dark place. Uh, How do we know this? Well, I want you to skip forward a bit to the passage that Jody read for us this morning. uh, Chapter 47, we'll just look at verses 7 through 9. Listen to what we're told here. It says, let me give you the setting. Uh, Joseph and, and Jacob have, have just reunited together. And Joseph says, Jacob, dad, I, I want to come and introduce you to the Pharaoh. And so this is Jacob's first meeting with Pharaoh immediately after being reunited with his son. It says, then Joseph brought, his, brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life. What's Pharaoh asking him? How old are you? Right, very simple question. How old are you? Listen to Jacob's answer. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. All that Pharaoh has done is just ask Jacob how old he is. But what happens here is that something else spills out almost unconsciously. Thinking about his age, 130 years seems to stir up memories from Jacob's past. Maybe the wounds that he experienced when his father chose his brother as favorite. Maybe the way that he had mistreated Esau and all the ramifications and consequences that it had on him. Maybe it was the deceit that he'd been a victim of and a party to with his uncle. The death of his wife, the loss of his son, his half-hearted faith. Jacob here doesn't just tell Pharaoh his age It's like he renders a verdict on his entire life. He he judges that, first of all, his time on earth has been far too short. It went by way too fast. Life always does. And Jacob says, and it was filled with evil. I've experienced a lot more sorrow than joy, he says. Life was not what I had hoped it would be. My dreams did not come true. And then not only that, but he says, and I've not attained to the years of the life of my fathers. These these words, I think, are even more painful. What he's saying is that he knows that he's not been as good of a man as they were. Uh, Jacob, when he compares himself to Abraham and Isaac, confesses that he has fallen terribly short of their example. In a nutshell, what Jacob is saying here is, is he's saying, my life is almost over, and I feel like I failed. I feel like I failed. This is a, a very, very dark passage. In fact, I think it's one of the darkest passages, at least in, in, in the early Old Testament. Jacob is deeply, deeply discouraged. I, uh, I spent some time this week uh, just kind of pacing around my office one morning, thinking about this passage, and I decided to kind of do a little exercise with it. I thought, I'm going to 
I'm going to think back for a few minutes over my life to all of the things that come to mind that discouraged me. Different ways that I've failed people or let them down and and other ways that people have failed me and let me down. I'll I'll just kind of see what comes to mind. And um, I was hoping maybe nothing would come on the list, right? (laughs) I was hoping that would be hard to do. But I found it was very easy. Things came to mind almost uh, immediately. There were faces that came to mind of specific people who I know as a pastor, I really let down. And I, I had this sort of feeling then, which was all drawn up now, that maybe somebody who is better than me could have been more effective or helpful. I, I thought of specific conversations that I had with specific people where I was too strong with them. I, I pushed them away. And other people where I had conversations where I wasn't strong enough. I was weak. I, I kind of wimped out. I, I thought about decisions that I had made that I wished that I could undo. And, and I thought about people, too, who have said things to me that really hurt or done things to me that caused pain in my life. And, and the thing about that was I, I just didn't have to, have to search for these things. And and, and when they came to mind, they weren't just sort of intellectual things that I could remember. They still made me feel bad. They, they still made me feel sick to my stomach. And I didn't like doing that, but it was really helpful to me because I, I think I get it. I, I think I get exactly what Jacob was feeling here. And I thought, you know, at times I feel exactly the same way, that the days of my life have not been what I've hoped for, and that I always haven't lived up to the person that I know that I ought to be. And I've, I've met many Christians who have gone through times of feeling very, very deeply discouraged about themselves and about their lives, like Jacob was here in this passage. But I want to point out this morning something that's very, very important about that. And that is, it's normal. To feel that way is normal. To look back over your life and to say, you know, it wasn't what I hoped it would be. And I sure wasn't who I thought that I would be. That's a very normal feeling. We all struggle with discouragement like that at at times. It's it's just part of being a sinner, a human being. And it's part of living in a world where we interact with other sinners, a, a fallen world that isn't perfect. And when we feel that way, it doesn't mean that God's not still there. And it doesn't mean that you have no faith. Seasons of discouragement are just a part of life But for a lack of a better way of saying it, we shouldn't let our discouragement discourage us too much. We should never get to a place where we feel that there's no hope. There's something that we should do with our discouragement. On the day that Jacob met Pharaoh, he was deeply, deeply discouraged. That was just where he was at. But a new day was coming for him. Thank God the story doesn't end there either. So even though Jacob was an old man at this point, what we're going to see is that his life isn't over yet. First, 
what's going to happen is something marvelous. Uh, Jacob is going to live 17 more years in Egypt, and we know almost nothing about those years. We don't really know anything that happened to him in those 17 years, but we do get a glimpse of him at the very end of his life. Uh, As Jacob is about to die, he gathers his family together to bless them, and Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to stand before Jacob. So I want you to look at at, at, uh, chapter 48, verses 14, and I'll put it on the screen behind me. Let's read that. We're going to read 14 through 16. It says, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. I want you to notice just one thing here. And that is that something has changed for Jacob. Do you sense it? I mean, do you feel it as you read those words? Jacob is no longer so dark. And the doom and the gloom of discouragement that was about him has has passed. And now what what pours out of him isn't that gloom. It's this beautiful testimony of God, not only as a lifelong shepherd to his fathers, but to his lifelong shepherd too. And he tells of the Lord redeeming him from all the evil that he's experienced in his life. And he rests his hope in the promise of God for his future. What a transformation has happened in, in this guy. What, how far he's come in, in just 17 years. At, at the end of Jacob's life, even though we, we don't know exactly how it happened, he discovered fresh the grace of God. And he has found, in his own words, in verse 16, something very important. Redemption. That's what Jacob says. He says, I found redemption. Do you know what uh, redemption is? Do you know what that word means? The word redemption means to be purchased back. Uh, It can also mean to be rescued or liberated, uh, set free, saved. Any of those words would apply. It's it's like a slave or a prisoner who's been set free. And, And Jacob, in the end, says, that's exactly what happened to me. He says, God redeemed me. He's released me. I'm free. As disappointing as my life has been, And as disappointing as I've been in my life, I've been redeemed. Discouragement does not get the last word. And this old man somehow has found his joy again. Redemption is one of, if not the most powerful concepts in the entire world. And if you want to know what the heart and soul is of the story of the Bible, it's that word. It's it's redemption. It's about half-hearted 
deceitful fence riders like Jacob being liberated from their sin and forgiven and bought back to God. And when we read the story of the life of this man, what we're meant to do is we are meant to long for exactly what it was that Jacob found. And that is redemption. Redemption is what this book is about. And the Bible goes on to promise that you and I can have it too. In fact, it tells us that God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world for the very purpose of redemption, liberation, being set free. That Jesus came to pay the cost, to buy us back to God. His death in exchange for our life. And the Bible promises that for anyone who would believe and trust that, redemption is theirs. You know, if you could take the entire message of the Bible somehow and pour it out into a pan and put the pan on a really, really hot stove and let it simmer all day long so that it boiled and boiled and was finally reduced to its very essence to a single sentence, you know what that sentence might easily be? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'll put it on the screen. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's redemption. The final verdict this teaches us on our lives will be decided by God and God alone. Not the lady who hates my preaching. God's not going to ask her for her opinion. Not your boss, who you work so hard to try to please. It won't be your buddies from high school, not the girls from college that you still compare yourself with a little bit. Not the parent whose affection you you fought so hard all of your life to earn. Or the child that you feel bad about because you raised them imperfectly. Not your spouse or your siblings. God isn't going to ask for their opinions either. And you know what else is true? God's not even going to ask you for yours. In the end, your own opinion of your own life, your verdict on yourself will have no real consequence. Because the verdict on our lives, the Bible teaches, belongs to God and God alone. And Romans 8, chapter 1, tells us that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will never be condemned. It's a promise. It's the greatest promise anyone could ever give. And so, on one hand, just like Jacob, we can admit with a realistic honesty how genuinely discouraged we are sometimes with ourselves and with our life and with the people around us, our our past. We can say transparently that all the days of our lives have not been what we hoped for and that we certainly have not lived up to who we know we should be. And yet, even as we feel this way, in fact, even in the face of these things, what we do is we cling to the same thing that Jacob clung to in the end. The grace of God. 
the, the sacrifice of his dear son, the promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Christians do with their discouragement is they live in a paradox between these two realities. It is true, and it will be all of our lives that sometimes we're going to really feel discouraged. In fact, sometimes we're going to go through really, really long periods of discouragement where we may doubt God, we may doubt ourselves. But the beautiful thing is we don't have to set our eyes here because what we do is we rest our faith and we rest all of our hope and we rest our joy, which Jacob received at the end, and and our confidence in redemption. It's redemption. That's what we need. That's what we long for. And we trust that in the end, Romans 8, chapter 1 is true. And that Jesus and Jesus alone will be our final word. Let's pray together. Father, I I just want to pray for those uh, specifically in this room today who are discouraged. Those who resonate with Jacob's words as he spoke to the Pharaoh that life has not been what they hoped those who feel bad about that, those who feel guilt, shame, regret, sorrow over all of those things. I know that it's not necessarily your purpose to take away those feelings. And yet, Father, I pray that each person who's in here who feels that way would trust you. I pray that they would trust your promises. I I pray that they would know that just as God was not through with this deceiving person, Jacob, that God wanted relationship with him, that God wanted something new and, and better for him and provided it himself. I pray that they would see that truth. I pray that they would recognize that God sent Jesus into this world to die so that all of those things that they feel this morning could be redeemed. And I pray that they would feel the release from that, that they would be set free from that. Oh, Father, when we're discouraged, when we feel hopeless and lost and and sad, it makes us so desperate for your grace. It, It makes your mercy shine so much more brilliantly and clear and Oh, I I pray for people here that they would see that. I pray that they would taste your love this morning. I pray that they would be aware of all that it cost you, the sacrifice of your own son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you are the kind of God who confronts us in our discouragement. And yet, even as you you fight against us, you, you are fighting for us. And we love you for that. We thank you for that. We pray that we would trust you and walk with you with all of our hearts, all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.